here it is, my turn again. Seems like that rolls around pretty often. But... <laughs> is that about right, Brandon? Well, this morning I want to... We are in the Easter season. Uh, next week is Palm Sunday. And I had a short conversation with Kyle last week. Kyle's going to be speaking both uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So I had just a short conversation with him. I didn't want to step on what he had to share with us, but I think we'll be fine. I think what I'm going to talk about this morning and what he's going to talk about, I think we'll be in good shape. I'd like to start out this morning by reminding us that when we pick this up, when we pick up our Bible, sit down to read, our daily reading, our morning devotional, whatever it is, what we're holding is a collection of 66 books written by more than 40 authors over a period of more than 2,000 years. And it's all one message. It's all about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Now, Bible skeptics or unbelievers basically will tell you, oh, no, this is, you know, the authors build on what the earlier writers wrote and so on. But the Bible proves itself over and over and over. It is humanly impossible to have written what is in the pages of the Bible without divine inspiration. That's the only way it could have been written down. And that's, that's kind of what I want to explore this morning as some of the things I want to, want us to look at. <clears throat> Every time I tackle something like this, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm up to the task. I don't know if I can explain this enough that we can understand it. You might happen to know that I read quite a bit, you know. And so I can read things and I can be astounded at what the author is telling me, what I'm reading, what I'm learning. But for me to try to express that, sometimes I don't know if I pull it off. So I hope that after I'm done here this morning, I hope you go home this afternoon, pull down your study Bible and your commentaries off the shelf, and sit down and figure out, what in the world is that guy talking about? (laughs) I hope that's the result of this this morning. But I want us to, here we are in the Easter, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and we're going to dive right into that. And I want to read this morning about the triumphal entry. And then I want to go back and talk about what led up to it, some of the things that led up to it. Uh, I can't touch nearly all of them, but some of the things that lead up to the triumphal entry, that's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 19, <clears throat> we're going to read about the triumphal entry. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. But he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples 
began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, we'll stop right there for just a minute. It's, it's interesting, at least to me it's interesting, all four gospel accounts uh, give this account of the triumphal entry. They're very similar. They don't, they, the wording really doesn't vary much. It's interesting to note here where it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All four gospel accounts, the people, the multitude, the crowd, and there's a big crowd because it's Passover time. There's a big crowd. They're singing Psalms 118. That The song, the praises they're singing come from Psalms 118. All four gospel accounts record this. It's in the narrative of all of them. In the narrative of two of them, in Matthew and and uh, Matthew and John, Matthew and John, they quote the prophecy from Zechariah nine, "Rejoice, O Zion," and so forth. Uh, we won't turn to that right now, but Zechariah nine nine, and uh, Matthew and John both use that in the narrative. Uh, uh, Mark and Luke don't, but all four of them use this uh, praise, this song from Psalms one eighteen. I thought that was pretty interesting. Let's pick it up here again at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if those were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and harm and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your salvation. Well, this is kind of a letdown. Here he is riding in, everybody's singing, praising, everybody's happy. And then he turns around and talks about this as he looks on Jerusalem. Well, why is that? Well, to get some background on this, to get... uh, I guess the best thing, the best way to say it is to get the prophecy behind this. We need to go to the book of Daniel. So turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to look at what Daniel had to say about this. It is, uh, it's quite, uh, uh, the book of Daniel is really a remarkable book. Chapter 9 is a remarkable chapter in the book. And uh, these Four verses that we're going to look at here um, are really kind of pivotal verses in the history of mankind, in the history of God's plan. Because what we're talking about here is Jesus is, you know, is, is riding in, he's coming down the Mount of Olives, he's riding into Jerusalem to present himself as the Passover lamb. He's coming to present himself as the Passover lamb, and it's the very first time he has ever allowed himself to be proclaimed king. Now, in previous times in his ministry, other people wanted to call him king, and he would not allow it. As he rides in at the time of Passover, uh, here he is. He's coming to present himself as the sacrifice, as the ultimate sacrifice. And he, he allows, he, he lets himself be proclaimed king. So it's important to remember that as we look at these verses in Daniel here. So <clears throat> turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to start, start out at the verse, first verse of chapter 9. Now, he says, in the first year of Darius, the son of, um, you can, 
some people pronounce that Darius, some pronounce it Darius, and I find myself pronouncing it both ways as I read through here. So if you hear, hear me say it one way, one time, and one the next, don't worry about it. But in the first year of Darius, the son of Azaharius, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Okay, so what we're looking at here is um, the empire of Nebuchadnezzar, the empire of Babylon, has fallen. Uh, the Medes and the Persians have come in, and in uh, Daniel chapter 5, it's just a wonderful story how that all happened. Um, uh, the, uh, the reign of uh, the Babylonian Empire fell, and the, the Medo-Persian Empire took over. Now, what you need to understand here is that Darius is the king in Babylon. He is kind of a, I don't, I don't think you want to say a vassal king, but he is subservient to Cyrus. Cyrus is the empire of Persia. I mean, he is the uh, emperor, the emperor of Persia, the Persian empire. So it's a Medo-Persian empire. They have formed an alliance, and together they have conquered Babylon. But Darius, the Mede, is the one ruling in Babylon. But Cyrus is really has uh, authority over him. So you need to kind of remember that. Uh, in the first year of his reign, this is the first year of Darius. So it's the first year after the Babylonians have been taken out. And the Medo-Persian Empire has come into play. Now, you remember back in the second chapter of Daniel, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had that just scared him to death, and only Daniel was able to interpret for him. The golden head, uh, that, was, that was Nebuchadnezzar. That was the, the uh, Empire of Babylon. And now we're into the silver shoulders and arms. And I think that's significant. The arms, you know, it's, it's two. It's a partnership. And that's how you get the Medo-Persians. But so we are now into the silver shoulders of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Uh, the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire has fallen. So this is when Daniel is writing. It's in the first year of this new empire. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel carried into Babylon when he was just a young man, 13, 14 years old, just a teenager, has lived his whole adult life in Babylon, in captivity. But we know that while he was there, because he was obedient to God, because he was faithful to God, he lived a mighty life among the Babylonians. He was right-hand man to the king most of the time. And it was more than one king. It was, uh, as, as you're going through uh, Daniel, not only was Nebuchadnezzar, but it was also Darius and, and so forth. Uh, he came uh, to positions of authority quite often as he went through his adult life in captivity. But being faithful to God was what put him in that position. Now, um, so he's, he, by reading the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, and you might scratch your head and say, well, how did he get a hold of the, prophet, of the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah? Well, Babylon was a a, a very uh, prominent trading point. So there were traders came through. There, you know, materials from all over the world were available. He was able to get scrolls. He was able to correspond back to Jerusalem. So he had uh, the scroll of Jeremiah was available to him. That was not a problem. So he was reading that and figured out, hey, our captivity was for 70 years. Uh, and there was a reason it was 70 years. And, and as Daniel in uh, verse 3, as he begins to pray to God, this is what he is asking forgiveness for. If you read through that prayer from verses uh, 3 through 19, he's asking God forgiveness for his people's sins. For a period of 490 years, they did not 
obey God's command that on the 49th year they were supposed to let the land lie fallow, let it rest, let it heal, and and then begin again. You know, it, would, it was called a year of jubilee. And then the land would return to the original family, and they would start over, another 49-year cycle. But for 70 times, they failed to do that. For a period of 490 years, they disobeyed God. So for this 490-year period, they had missed the command of the Lord 70 times. So guess what? They spent 70 years in captivity. Uh, for every for every time they missed what they were supposed to do, they were given a year of captivity. Well, Daniel's figuring this out as he reads from Jeremiah. So in verse 3, he falls on his face before God and he starts this prayer. And he is uh, adamant in begging God to forgive his people, to forgive me. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Well, now what's very interesting here, Daniel is asking this prayer of forgiveness for the last 40, 490 years. But flip over to verse 20, this guy named Gabriel is going to come see Daniel, and he is not interested in the last 490 years. He's going to give Daniel a message about 490 years in the future. Daniel's asking forgiveness for the last 490 years. Gabriel brings a message talking about a future 490 years. Verse 20, <clears throat> while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, he's referring to an earlier visit from Gabriel, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice, by Jewish custom, was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So here we are, we call it the middle of the afternoon, but that was about the time. Now, one of the commentaries I read, this is just an interesting little footnote, but uh, one of the commentaries I read said, they had someone that's fluent in Hebrew pray this prayer that Daniel starts in verse 3 and goes through verse 19. They had him pray this prayer like Daniel would have prayed it. It took about three and a half minutes to pray that prayer. Okay? So what does it say here? Uh, he, he said, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, three and a half minutes ago, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Gabriel stood in the presence of God. Gabriel, as, as you go through all the way through the Bible, you kind of find that Gabriel, Gabriel gets all the good jobs. You know, Gabriel's come to talk to Daniel. Gabriel gets to come tell Mary she's going to be the father of the Savior. You know, Gabriel, but but Gabriel stands in the presence of God. So three and a half minutes ago. When Daniel started praying, God sent Gabriel with the message. Just that quick. So that's, that's how quick he responded to this. Okay, now here we get to the 70 weeks. We get to verse 24. And uh, like I said, you know, I don't pretend to understand all this. I, I have been fascinated by it for several years. I have read several books about it. And I think it's worth our time to try to understand as much of this as we can. And as we go through this, I hope you'll kind of understand why I'm thinking this too. But the 70 weeks of Daniel have been talked about, uh, studied, discussed, argued about for many, 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 many years. And uh, so we're going to take a, look, take a short look at it this morning. So we'll start here in verse 24. 
It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Well, let's stop right there before we go on. First of all, we need to understand here who Gabriel is talking to, who God's this message from God is for. It says, your people and your holy city. Gabriel's talking to Daniel. He's talking to the Jews and to Jerusalem. The church, the Gentiles, don't figure into this anywhere. And anybody, if you hear teaching about this, if they try to say, okay, now as the modern church, we got to, you know, we got to pay. Don't worry about that. He's not speaking to us. He's speaking to the Jewish people. He says, your people and your holy city. This is a message from God to the Jews. Okay? Now, the first two words there, 70 weeks. Well, to us, 70 weeks, well, that's about a year and a half. You know, no. In the Jewish custom, Jewish tradition, there are 70 weeks of days, 70 weeks of weeks, 70 weeks of months, and 70 weeks of years. <clears throat> now, from other, other uh, things that we can read here, it, it becomes obvious pretty quick. What he's talking about here is 70 weeks of years. How many years were they being punished for? 490. Gabriel's talking about 70 weeks of years, seven uh, seven, seven, uh, a week of years be seven years times 70, 490 years. He's talking about 490 years in the future for the nation of Israel, for, for the Jews. So that's what we've got to keep in mind here. Um, and as we get, as when we come back to Luke here pretty soon, back to the triumphal entry, and we come into, you know, the time of Easter, then it becomes clear the division here between what's meant for the Jews and how us Gentiles were afforded salvation, how the church came to be, how the modern-day church came to be. But right now he's talking to the Jews. He's, he's giving this message to, to Daniel. He says, about your people and your holy city. Then he lists six things here. There's six things here that are going to happen in this 490-year period. Okay, Seventy weeks are decreed, number one, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. These six things are going to happen by the time we get to the end of the 490-year period. Well, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here, and it was 483 years before Jesus was here that these things were listed. How many of them have been completed? Well, as you go down through there, you can pick out a few things. It says, to finish the transgression. Well, to believers, to those of us who believe and accept Jesus, the transgression has ended. When Jesus went to the cross, our transgressions were ended. God does not see our sin anymore. So that has ended for us. But the Jews, as we know from gospel accounts, did not accept Jesus as Messiah. Their transgression has not ended. And as you go down through there, there's not much else here that has been completed either. Uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness. That hadn't happened. Uh, seal both vision and prophet. Uh, the, 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 the prophecy, the vision of prophecy will be sealed. There will be no more prophecy. There will be no more vision when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on earth. That hasn't happened. We're still waiting for that to happen. So, as you, these six things that are going to happen by the time the 490 years has ended... Hadn't happened. So what does that tell you? The 490 years has not ended. We're still in that 490-year period. Somehow, some 2,500 years later, we're still in it. Well, how do you explain that? 
Well, that's what I hope to do here. Okay, so verse 24, um, the, the, the 70 weeks, or 490 years, have been decreed on the Jewish people, but they're not over yet. Okay, let's go on to verse 25. It says, Know therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, so we know here that we're talking about uh, 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 a week being seven years. So from the time the word goes out to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, there's going to be seven weeks and there's going to be sixty-two weeks. That's a total of sixty-nine weeks. Now, why do we have that division of seven and sixty-two? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, most I, I, should, I should say a lot of Bible scholars, there's still some discussion about it, but most Bible scholars will agree that that first seven weeks, that 49 years, is the time it took from when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem went out until the temple and the city were completed. Now, some, uh, some people don't quite want to agree with that, but that is a pretty generally accepted uh, idea. So the other 62 weeks will be added to that. So we're talking about a total of 69 weeks here. Now let's back up to the beginning of that. Understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, and we're going to have this time period of 69 weeks. Now, when did the decree to go out and build Jerusalem happen? Well, now we need to go back. Let's go all the way back to the book of Ezra. Now chronologically, uh, right after Daniel comes Ezra, right after Ezra comes Nehemiah. But the books of the Bible aren't necessarily laid out chronologically, so you've got to go back quite a ways to get back to Ezra. But if you get back to, to Ezra, right off the bat, you're going to find a proclamation, the proclamation of Cyrus. So let's take a look at that. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, I already talked about uh, this Medo-Persian empire, and Cyrus kind of had the upper hand, uh, kind of had authority over Darius. But they, uh, you know, Darius was the one, he was the Mede that came in, took and occupied Babylon. But here's Cyrus. I mean, this is Babylon after all. Why wouldn't you want to go check it out? You know, why wouldn't you want to go gloat over having defeated Babylon? So Cyrus comes to Babylon too. But it says, in the first year, now this is Ezra writing this, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled... The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, if you go home this afternoon, if you feel like it, I would encourage you to just go to your computer and just Google Cylinder of Cyrus. What you see will amaze you. It will pop up a picture of a clay cylinder about this big around, and I think at one time it probably stood two, three foot tall. Now, the thing is broken. Part of it is missing. And it now resides under glass in the British Museum in London. Uh, it was discovered on a dig in Babylon many, many years ago. And even though the cylinder is broken, part of it is missing. The words on there, and this, the, these, these, they called it a stele. This is how these ancient kings, how they... Uh, uh, it was their ego post. All the great things they did, they, they wrote it. They had a scribe put it on these uh, clay cylinders that were then fired, hardened, and lasted for a long, long time. 
but it was how they kept their diary. It's how they kept their historical account. And on that cylinder of Cyrus, he makes reference to having sent back this people back to their holy place after he had conquered Babylon. So if you want to Google cylinder of Cyrus, cylinder of Cyrus and look that up, you're, you're able to do that. It's pretty fascinating, really. But anyway, here in, here in Ezra, uh, verse 2 says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Okay, so here's, here's Cyrus. He is not a believer. He's pagan king, you know. He, he cares not about the Jews and their history and their traditions and the commands from God for them. He does not care about that. But it says, uh, the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. How did he do that? Well, when you read Daniel chapter 5 about the downfall of Babylon, how Cyrus and, and, and Darius came in, conquered the city and all that, you've got to go back to Isaiah. Isaiah, 150 years before this happened, wrote, let, wrote a message specifically to Cyrus. 150 years before it happened. Well, after Cyrus came in, Babylon fell, and here comes Ezra and Daniel, one or the other of them, brought this message to Cyrus and said, Look, look what our God the message he has for you. When he read this, it was written 150 years ago, he was flabbergasted. He was astonished. And that is what stirred up his heart to obey God. So, uh, you know, check that out in Isaiah and in, in chapter 5 of Daniel and so on. It's a, it's a fascinating story. Okay, so right here, the very first few verses of Ezra. Here Cyrus gives a decree to go back and build the temple. Well, there's two other places in Ezra. Um, in Ezra uh, chapter 6, Darius, King Darius, he gives another decree. Go back and build the temple. And then you go farther into, into uh, Ezra in chapter 7. Here, Artaxerxes, the next king after Darius, he gives a decree to go back and build the temple. Why do they have to keep issuing these decrees? Well, there was just a lot going on. Ezra was... Ezra was the first one back, first to take a group out of Babylon, Babylon, take some of the Jews, and go back to Jerusalem. He was the first one back, first one to do this. And it was quite some time later before Nehemiah came along. But they kept struggling. And just read through the book of Ezra. You'll read about all the struggles they were having. So the, the whole process of getting there, laying out the foundation, that happened pretty quick. Then they started running into problems. And so this decree to rebuild the temple had to keep being repeated. So, now we need to go to Nehemiah. When you get to Nehemiah, you find something totally different. Because remember, verse 25 says, from the decree, when the decree goes out to rebuild the city. Now, we're, been, we're working on rebuilding the temple and have been for quite some time. But now we're looking for the decree to go back and rebuild the city. So here we come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Cheslev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. 
And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah gets word from home. And it's not pretty. Things are bad in Jerusalem. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned. The city lies open, gutted, and looted and vandalized. It's just not in good shape at all. Now, notice here he's talking about uh, he is in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. So we've had Cyrus and, and, and Darius. Darius, basically, reigned first. Now we're in the reign of Artaxerxes. And not only in his reign, but in the 20th year of it. So it's been a while. It's been quite a while since Ezra went back to start building the temple. Uh, Verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven and great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So this is very similar to Daniel in his prayer in chapter 9. Nehemiah is confessing the sins of himself, of his father, of his family, and of his people. He's confessing their sins that led to this desolation of their holy city of Jerusalem. So he's, he's asking forgiveness. What would you do? You know, what would I have you do? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, though, you, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And he goes on, he's just pouring himself out before God in this prayer. The very last sentence of that chapter of that prayer, or after the prayer, the very last sentence of the chapter, says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He saw him every day. He carried the cup to him every day. Chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, when they give a date, pay attention to it. When they give a date, pay attention to it. Something big is going to happen. Okay? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? There's nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, Well, what do you want? What are you requesting? Now, this is familiar. We've all had to walk into a driver's license test or go take a test in school or the boss says, Be in my office in five minutes or your wife calls and says, where are you? And and so I prayed to the God of heaven, you quick throw up a prayer. We've all been there, haven't we? And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. The king says, well, so what do you want me to do about it? Nehemiah quick threw up a prayer. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, 
that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah threw up, threw up his prayer, was not afraid to ask, and because of the grace of God, the king granted it. Now, we need to go back here to this very first verse. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, this day is the decree for Nehemiah to go back and build the city. The other decrees were about building the temple. What does verse 25 Daniel 9 say? When the day, when the day comes, when the decree goes out, for the day to go back and build the city. So that's what we're looking for here. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, well, we know that Artaxerxes took the throne in 465 B.C. So he was in his 20th year. So it would be 445 B.C. The month was Nisan, one of the months on the Jewish calendar, Nisan, and no day was given. It just says the month of Nisan. When no day is given, because any other time they give a month, pick a date, they will say the ninth day, the 14th day, whatever. No day is given by Jewish custom. That means it's the first day of the month. It's Nisan 1. It says in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, that translates out to Nisan 1, 445 B.C., and that translates on our calendar to March 14, 445 B.C. Okay, so we need to mark that. Mark the date. That's what we're after here. Uh, March 14, 445 B.C. So now let's go back to Daniel. Back to Daniel chapter 9, and uh, we're at verse 25. <clears throat> okay. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, we know, that, we know now that that is March 14, 445 B.C., um, and, and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, and there shall be sixty-two weeks. It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, all the all the commotion, all the problems, all the troubles they went through, building the temple and building the city. That's what he's talking about here. And we have this sixty-nine week period from the day that the decree goes out to build a city. And we just read in Luke about about uh, Jesus coming on his triumphal entry. We know the anointed one is coming. And uh, because that, that's what he's prophesying here. That's what Gabriel is telling Daniel is going to happen here. At the end of this 69-week period, this anointed one is going to come. That's what he's saying. Now, um, there shall be seven weeks plus 62 weeks. We've got 69 weeks. The Jewish calendar is 360 days. Okay? Uh, all ancient calendars were, all the ancient civilizations, 360 days in a year. And that's how we've got 360 degrees on a compass circle. That's how we've got 60 minutes in an hour, 60 seconds in a minute, and so forth. It's all based on this 360-day calendar. Well, in about 700 A.D., the Romans decided they were going to reorganize the calendar, and they did. <clears throat> they ended up uh, coming up with the Julian calendar, which is what we use today, 365 days in a year. And once every four years, we have a leap year. We add an extra day to make up, you know, to stay right with the moon phases. Well, on, on, in the, on the 360-day calendar, these ancient civilizations, they had their own way of dealing with that. Uh, the Jews, every, uh, there was an extra 11 and a half days every year uh, because of 360 days instead of 365, plus the leap years that come around. So 
every and, and it didn't it wasn't every three years it it fell on different years, but every so many years they would add a month every so many years they would add a month to their calendar they would have thirteen months of thirty days, and that happened on basically what we would call a leap year, but it did not fall on every fourth year. So every civilization had their own way uh, for the calendar to coincide with the moon signs. Well, but we do need to know that this has all been worked through. So you end up with 69, but for the purpose of what, for the message that Gabriel is giving Daniel, and you go all the way through the Bible, including Revelation, it's always based on this 360-day calendar. It always is, all the way through the Bible. So, what we've got here now, we've got 69 weeks, weeks of years, times 7, which would be 7 years for every week, times 360 days, and that equals 173,880 days. 173,880 days. Now, who figured all this out? Well, a guy named Sir Robert Armstrong was the first one to, uh, to make this public. In 1895, he published a book called the Coming Prince. Uh, Sir Robert Armstrong was a was a son of a Scottish minister. Uh, he himself was a minister, and he was a very avid Bible scholar. Uh, he spent his life uh, studying and writing and and uh, illustrating things that were going on in the Bible like this. He was also an assistant superintendent at Scotland Yard. So you can't be a dummy and be an assist- assistant superintendent at Scotland Yard in London. So he was the one that, that published this in 1895 in a book called The Coming Prince. And he was the one that came up with this formula. It's 173,880 days. Now, we should know, you should know that in the 130 years, 130, whatever it is, 132 years since 1895, uh, scholars that were skeptical of this or didn't want to accept it or wanted to come up with different things have been able to do it. Uh, his, his logic, his reasoning, his research has held up, and most Bible scholars have agreed with this and corroborated it in their own studies and said, yeah, this is right. This is right. This 173,880-day formula is it was what we need to stick to. So here we are. Uh, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He has deliberately arranged to ride into Jerusalem to fulfill this prophecy in the one in Zechariah 9.9. Uh, Rejoice greatly, O Zion, your king cometh on the 10th of Nisan. Uh, As you read through the Gospels, you find a time or two there where the disciples say, Well, don't you think we better go? Jesus said, Nope, we're going to wait a couple days. Jesus did this on purpose. Well, after all, Jesus was at the throne, told Gabriel to go tell Daniel. He knew what was going on. He knew what was happening here. So Jesus arranged to deliberately ride into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, in our calendar, that is April 6, 32 A.D. Exactly. 173,880 days from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. What a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's God's plan. You know, they know what they're doing here. They know what's going on. It is irrevocable proof that the Bible is divinely inspired. Mankind could not have come up with that in any way, shape, or form. This is God's word. It's God's plan. Okay, so now let's go on from there to verse 26. Now, you know, this we're, we're celebrating. Jesus is riding in. We're seeing how this prophecy has been fulfilled. Everything is joyful, and things kind of take a turn here. 
It says, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall cut off. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Well, cut off, the word for cut off there is karat. K-A-R-A-T. It means execution. It means death. Well, we know that after, you know, Jesus came in, we know he went to the cross. We know he died and we know he died alone. He, uh, you know, his friends, his disciples, they, they deserted him. They ran off, frightened for their own lives. Uh, they turned and ran. He, he died on that cross alone, seemingly forsaken by God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, as he hung on that cross, he is sin. He is our sin. And God cannot look upon him. So he was cut off. He died with nothing, with no friends forsaken by God. So that that is fulfilled. He will be cut off with nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. What in the world is that talking about? Well, let's go back to Luke. Uh, I'm going to kind of try to step it up a little bit here. Let's go back to Luke. These last verses, these verses from uh, uh, 42 to 44 that I read earlier. Uh, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You see what's happening here? Jesus is holding them accountable. He said, hey, this was written down. You knew this. You should have known this. You should have known that the day I come in... My kingdom will be established, but you reject me. You turn away from me. If you had known, if your eyes had been open, if you had not rejected, but because it is, that's why we have that cutoff. That's why we stop at 69 weeks. That's why the 70th week has not happened yet, because their eyes are closed and they reject Jesus. And so because of that, then he goes on here, he says, for the, days, uh, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you didn't know. Because you hadn't paid attention to what's written down. Because you rejected me, this is what's going to happen. Now, at first glance, it sounds like he's talking about sometime way in the future, way up in the seventh week, but that's not the case. In 70 A.D., the Roman army, and now keep in mind, this is because the Jews rejected Jesus, and what we're going to see here is something that has gone on for many, many years. In 70 A.D., uh, the, uh, the, fifth, uh, the fifth legion of the Roman army invaded Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews had done something, you know, to upset the Romans, to upset the emperor. And under the command of Titus Vespasian, he was the commander of the legion that came in. They they came in and they made a mess out of Jerusalem. They plundered, they pillaged, they basically slaughtered and destroyed, raped and, raped and looted and everything you can imagine. Now, they intended, now this comes from the writing of uh, Josephus and Herodotus, uh, Jewish historians and so forth, and it's from writings from people such as these that we know these things. They really intended to leave the temple intact because, after all, it was a pretty cool building and it was a very rich building. But in the course of the fighting, the looting, and so on, a torch accidentally went into the temple. It caught the tapestries and the woodwork, the fine cedar woodwork, you know, that, that lined the wall and so on, caught it on fire, and it burned really, really hot. Of course, it was a stone building. The structure itself stood, but everything in it was destroyed. 
which included the melting down of the gold that was in the temple. Well, those Jewish soldiers were quite motivated to get that gold out from between the cracks in the stones and that ran into the grooves and the tiles of the floor. By the time they were done, there was not one stone left standing on another. This prophecy that Jesus gave here in 32 A.D., it was fulfilled 38 years later in 70 A.D. So that's what he's talking about here in these few verses uh, in, uh, uh, the, in Luke 19, verses 43 and 44. So that prophecy was fulfilled, which fulfills what Gabriel told Daniel in verse 26. So you see, by the time we get to the end of 69 weeks, a lot has happened. A lot has been fulfilled. Now, I'm not going to go into verse 27, because that basically is um, the, the, the teaching, the instruction, what's going to happen in the 70th week. And we hear a lot about that. We call it the end times. We call it, uh, you know, the tribulation, and which is, you know, the best definition for it. Uh, I have had people ask me, I have had heard people discuss, are we in the last days? Yes, we certainly are. At the end of the 69 weeks, the last days started. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. All that remains to happen is for the 70th week, uh, the, the seven years of the tribulation to come in. Now, we know uh, because, of, because Jesus you know, said you know, you're, the Jews are cut off, that opened the door for us. That's where the modern-day church, that's where our church, that's where our path to salvation came through Christ on the cross. So we've had this 2,000 years. Have we done what we're supposed to? There's an awful lot taught in here that we're supposed to be doing, just like the Jews were supposed to be doing. So are we living up to it? Are we fulfilling our part, our end of the deal? Now, what, what are some of the things that we can learn from all this? It kind of, we started out here kind of uh, on a happy note with Jesus riding in Jerusalem, ends up kind of down the dumps a little bit here. But what, there's a lot we can learn from this. Number one, we've got hope for the future. We know Christ will rule and reign forever. And because we know that, because we have hope in the future, we can have confidence in the present. We don't have to worry about the future. And when we're not worrying about the future, that lets us have confidence and happiness today, right now. Um, the biggest one of all, we've got reason to share the gospel. We know the good news. And we know that the world is full of a lot of sad and confused people. If you don't believe people are confused today, just, just watch the news a day or two. People just are mixed up. They don't know which end is up. We do. We've got the good news, and we need to be telling them. And that's, that's, that's our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So while it seems the news is all bad, we have fresh and encouraging news, and that's what we need to be sharing with people. So as we go from here today and as we go into Palm Sunday next week and Easter the week after that, truly the happiest occasions in all of Christendom as we celebrate uh, the, the death and, the, and most of all the resurrection of Jesus. So as we go into that uh, with reason to celebrate, um, I hope a little background here, some of, the, some of the prophecies, some of the history behind this. I hope you find it interesting. I hope you find it just half as fascinating as I do because I can, I can read about this stuff, study this stuff, and never get tired of it. So like I said, I hope you go home. I hope I pricked your curiosity enough that you'll go home and get out your favorite commentary, study Bible, or whatever, and take a look at it. See if you can uh, make sense of what, out of what I've been talking about. And if you got something that say, well, now wait, I think you missed something here. Boy, I'd love to talk to you about it. So just come talk to me about it. Uh, okay, let's pray to end. 
Father, thank you for your word. Every time we look into it, there's just things that fascinate us, uh, that make us scratch our heads, that make us just be in awe of you. So it's that sense of awe, Lord, that we thank you for. Most of all, we thank you for what you have done for us on the cross as we celebrate this Easter season. So we would just go from here today. We pray would you give us uh, confidence in the presence and hope and assurance for the future. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Darrell, I have a closing song. <laughs>